This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. It can be found on page 811 in your black-covered Bibles. Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Holy Spirit, we are desperate for you to change us. We are desperate for you to transform us. In fact, this warning that you give Jesus is something that we can't um, accomplish on our own. Left to ourselves, we want all the approval and all the praise and all the glory because we're hungry for it and we think it'll help us. We think it'll fill us up, but it's not true. And Holy Spirit, we need you to take this word and apply it to the deepest parts of our hearts. We want to understand and experience this reality. We want to live our lives for your eyes only, King of the universe. We want to live our lives in the presence of the living God. And Holy Spirit, we need your power to do that. So we ask you to come. We ask you to come. You're always here, but we explicitly invite you with willing hearts and a humble disposition. Would you come this morning? Would you come this morning and change us? I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, the, uh, the heart, the heart of the matter is the matter at hand this morning. Your heart's the matter at hand. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, According to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary, quote, we have what we may well call a picture of Christian living his life in the world in and before the presence of God, in active submission to God and an entire dependence upon God. He goes on to say, I sometimes think that this is the most uncomfortable part of the entire scriptures. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us, and it will not allow us to escape. End quote. What do we mean? What do we mean when we say that the text holds a mirror up for us? What do we mean when we talk that way? We mean that we need help. You and I need a lot of help to see. You need help to see what's really there. We need help to see what's true about us. We need the word of God to say to us, I know that you think you see things correctly, but you don't. You don't. How's that sit with us this morning? I want to be clear and compassionate just as our Lord is and, and, and just tell you straight that there's no exceptions in this room. There are no exemptions available for the Sermon on the Mount. 
We should hear Jesus' words as him speaking directly to our hearts, directly to our lives, not to our spouse or our roommate or our parents. He's telling us, he is telling us that we have stuff on our face that we can't see, that we don't know is there. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. We have stuff in our hearts that we are prone to miss or prone to misunderstand. Look in the mirror. Look here. Because, 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 because of verses like Matthew 7, 24, which says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and great was the fall of it. So I have to ask this morning, like serious as a heart attack, do you feel the raindrops out there? Do you feel the wind swirling around us? Do you see, do you see the floods coming? Because I do, I do. And everyone who hears these words of Jesus will stand firm. I don't want us to be washed away in the storm. I don't want your houses to be washed away because great will be the fall of them. And this is where this sermon terminates. This is where it's aiming. This is where it points to. This is where it's going. And I want us to keep that perspective, a perspective on that goal, the goal of having a house that's got a foundation of pure, solid granite. We got to hear Jesus and we got to do what he says if we don't want to be washed away. In the next several weeks, we're going to break down Christian giving, Christian prayer, Christian forgiveness, and Christian fasting. Matthew 6 has a consistent dynamic. And in the first verse of this chapter, Jesus gives us a warning. He says, beware, 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 beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And Jesus is going to take time to give illustrations of how to not practice our righteousness before men. But all I'm going to be concerned with today is the essential dynamic stated in this verse. We're being warned to beware of doing good things so that other people congratulate us. This one verse is a thematic introduction for the next 20 verses that follow. This one verse provides the essence of what Jesus is getting at in his next three illustrations. So we're getting a clear kind of topic sentence for the thrust of the understanding that we need to grasp as he goes into giving, prayer, and fasting in the next few weeks. We've been looking at what Jesus means when he says that we have to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees from uh, chapter 5, verse 20. 
It's an inner heart righteousness. It's an inner righteousness that accords with our outward behavior. Jesus is going to proceed to explain more of what he's talking about with regards to Christian piety and Christian practices. But first, he nails up a big red sign. When you see a sign that says, beware of dog, you know what that means. You know what it means? It means there's a threat that's lurking and you need to be alert. You need to be on guard. You need to be ready for when it shows its ugly head. And Jesus is nailing up a big beware sign as we walk into a number of examples of Christian piety and Christian practices. The symptoms of our lives that we exhibit might look different, but it's the same sinful disease. The praise of men. Virtue signaling and the like. Jesus is warning against pride and the praise of men and pride's much more damaging than other sins. Often we can be tempted to think that the really bad sins are the really ugly sins, but pride has done way more damage than your average sin of the flesh. I'm going to talk from a risky position this morning. I'm going to, I'm going to preach from the position that this warning applies to all of us. I'm going to preach from the position that there are zero exceptions to Jesus's warning. And in my sermon today, we'll only make three kind of claims that develop from Jesus's warning in chapter six, verse one. The first one is that this warning assumes an impulse, a kind of human impulse or human temptation. Jesus assumes a human impulse with this warning Second, our, our Father sees in secret. Now that part isn't in this text, but it's going to be a recurring theme throughout. So today we're going to talk about being seen in secret and rewards. So thirdly, if we make peace with that temptation, if we make peace with that human impulse, we'll have no reward from God. First, this warning assumes a human impulse or temptation to operate with certain motivations. Now, I'm going to name just two dynamics of this temptation. We have an impulse to want to please men and not God. And aiming to please men is aiming to please ourselves and not God. This text assumes that we're tempted to love the praise of man. Listen to John 12, 41 through 43. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You're made to seek glory. We're made to seek God's holy approval. You were created to seek healthy approval. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And that specific text is focused towards leaders in the church, but any disciple in the church can apply that to their lives. Do your best to present yourself faithful. We all long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But we often live like we want to hear that from other people more than we want to hear it from God. 
There's an impulse. There's a constant bubbling temptation in the heart of man to soak up the praise and admiration of other people. None of us are exempt. Jesus knows you. This is great. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Right now, right here, today, this morning. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And the test, the test of this isn't whether or not you get the admiration that you want. The test is what that admiration does in your soul. Where does the praise of man function in your heart? Is it ultimate or is it subordinate? Is it a cherry on top? Is it extra? That's what we must ask. Because if we're faithful, if you're a faithful, hardworking person, you're, if you're even somewhat disciplined, then other people are likely going to praise you. And that's fine. That's a good thing. That's even appropriate. It's not bad at all. And I'm less concerned about whether or not you can retort in a way that diminishes or diverts this praise like responding with, hey, hey, it's not me, it's God, or all glory to God, I'm just a vessel. I'm less concerned with whether or not you're able to respond that way, and I'm more concerned with what's happening inside your soul in those moments. And so is, we see in our text, Jesus. Those glory-diverting statements may be really accurate and good, but you can and I can still absorb praise and it can creep in and start to motivate us. It can seep through the cracks and try to satisfy you. Or the praise of men can wiggle into your heart and try to offer you relief or just some comfort in ways that distort our relationship to our only true audience, the only audience that truly matters in our lives. That's why Jesus will go on to give detailed protocol to help us maintain an accurate outlook and understanding of who, who we are aiming to please. He gives us a means of grace to be lived out in the presence of God alone. Children naturally long for the approval and praise of their parents, and that's cute, and it's wholesome to an extent. We want to respond to our kids like God responds to us, with mercy and and compassion and real interest. When our kids search for our approval, we should want to shower our children with love and acceptance. We should show outwardly how much we enjoy our children the same way God shows us that he enjoys us. But we grow up and then we project this approval seeking onto everybody else in our lives. We move our hearts out from the secret eye of our Heavenly Father and set them in the path of the praise of other people. Jesus' warning assumes that we'll be tempted to love the praise of men. Jesus knows this, and he warns us here of seeking it at the expense of seeking our heavenly Father's approval instead. The second kind of baked-in reality behind seeking the praise of men is that it's self-seeking. Like peer pressure, we, we perform. We perform for others because we long to avoid their disdain. 
We long to avoid being in the out group. We long for human acceptance and approval in order to achieve something that we think we need. We trade God's promises to defend us, to take care of us. His promises to keep us in the palm of his hand. And instead, we think that we must watch out for number one. Seeking the praise of men in its most insidious form devolves into outright unbelief. We don't believe God can do what we want or what we think we need him to do. We don't believe he'll keep his promises. We don't believe that he has our best interests in mind. We don't believe he'll do exactly what we need him to do, exactly when he wants to, for exactly how long he decides. Ultimately, unholy kind of people-pleasing is really just self-pleasing. We aim to please others for relief from fear or to relieve our own anxieties. We aim to please others in order to help us get what we want, which is usually some kind of reassurance or validation or consolation or or something else. People-pleasing is self-oriented and self-motivated. Now, I want to also say not all the time, right? Not all the time. There's a way that you can do things for other people that's godly and honest and pure, And we can't succumb to a kind of analysis paralysis when it comes to our motives. We can't just sit around staring at our motives and making sure they're perfectly clear. We still have to operate as human beings. But there's a way to do things for others that's godly and honest. And there's a way to do things that's to prop up ourselves or to comfort our hearts that is a way that God wants to tell you that he sees, and that's what should orient our most fundamental motivations. This text and one's coming in the next several weeks invite us to do that kind of difficult heart work, that kind of difficult assessment. They invite us to ask, why am I doing things this way? And for who? And how? And toward what end? Is there any unbelief or selfish motives in me that I can give away to God, that I can confess, that I can repent of, that I can turn away from, God will show you. God will show you if you ask him to. So the first principle to apply from Jesus's warning is that you must fight against the temptation to live a life that's aimed horizontally at the approval of men instead of vertically for the approval of the eyes of God. Next, our Father sees in secret. You see, there's a reality to holiness that's cultivated inside the Christian's heart that demands expression, demands to be expressed. That's real. Jesus goes on to assume that we'll give to those in need, and he assumes that we'll fast. He says later, when you fast, not if you fast. There's actions that a Christian should be led to do from the heart. And Jesus's beware statement is so that you don't miss out on eternal benefits that follow from a life of holiness. Those benefits, this reward, these rewards come from what God sees us do in secret. 
Jesus' warning has already put the pressure directly on the dark place in our soul that longs for the approval and praise and glory that comes from man instead of God. And this begs the question, what kind of motivation should we have for practicing righteousness? Because he's already said that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. But it cannot be motivated by the approval of the people around us. What about letting our light shine? Remember, aren't we to be salt and light? Aren't we supposed to demonstrate our saltiness and demonstrate our brightness? Matthew 5.15 says, Nor do people put a light under nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father that's in heaven. It isn't by chance that these two angles of teaching unfold in this order. Think about that. Jesus says, let your light shine in front of people so that they see your light and give glory to God. So there's something about the Christian's life that is seen by others, and it should be seen by others, but then he adds this distinction that it, that, that it should direct the glory of that life upwards toward God the Father and not to the Christian himself. And he follows that instruction by saying, beware of temptation, you will have to hoard that glory for yourself. Don't do that. He says, don't do that. You're the light of the world, but let your light do what it's supposed to do and divert all the glory where it belongs to your heavenly Father. And let this happen because if you grasp for it, if you grasp for it, you don't understand. God sees in secret. God sees when no one else sees or knows. And I want that for you to sink in right now. When you give, when you bless others, when you sacrifice for other people, your father knows. He knows. He knows. He sees it. He knows. The truth is that that is the power of Christian ministry and effort. This truth is why men and women throughout the history of the church, do insane kinds of things. This is why missionaries move to hostile environments where no one may ever believe the gospel. This truth is why ministry professionals get up and work hard and go to bed late and give their lives away even though it may seem like no one is paying attention. This truth that your father sees in secret is why moms and dads labor, labor over and over and over again for their children's true good. There's never anything there is never anything in your life that's too small or too insignificant. Nothing. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. That road is small potatoes, but practice your faithful holiness always in the presence of the living God because he is watching. And here, I want to say really clearly, this means the most boring. This means the most insignificant this means, this means the, the littlest acts of holiness are never wasted. They're never wasted. 
That means you, mom, when you discipline your kids over and over and over, and it seems like you're not making any progress. This means you, dad, when you get up early and pray for your wife and kids, and it seems like it isn't doing any good. This means you, kids, when you try to obey your parents and listen to them and respect their authority in your home, no effort of that is wasted. God sees, and he sees when it feels like nobody else cares. Don't do what you do for the praise of man. Do it for the glory of God. This means that we have to cultivate an attitude. We have to cultivate a certain understanding. We must cultivate an awareness of the presence of God in our lives. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. See, God sees everything. He sees everything. There's a real trend. There's a real trend in our culture today to use the phrase being seen, to use a kind of language like that in our culture today. And it's, it's a, an expression of a desire that we have to experience love or to experience appreciation and value from other people. And it can be totally harmless and helpful. But what would it look like if you cultivated a profound, deep, rich, biblical experience? Not merely a biblical understanding, but I mean a deep biblical experience sunk down into the deepest parts of your heart that God sees. God sees you. What would it look like if the anchor of your person was the fact that God's watching And he says he loves you. He says he's for you. He says he'll never leave you or forsake you. I think we can be too quick even to relieve this desire to be seen by affirming others that we we care for them. But what if we oriented our satisfaction deep in our hearts around the sheer objective reality that God is the one that sees? Other people in your life might see and they might make you experience like relief temporarily. But if the strongest weight in your soul is the acknowledgement and awareness of God's loving presence in your life, you will be invincible against seeking the praise of man. If you want to see the most powerful temptation for praise and approval shrink in your life, you don't need willpower. You need to experience the presence of God when no one else cares and cultivate it. Become familiar with it. There are people in your life right now that have unwarranted influence in your life. You're afraid of what they'll say. You're afraid of what they think of you. Or you're afraid of what would happen if they dumped you as a friend. And that fear can be controlling. But if you go to your creator and sit in his presence and cultivate an awareness of his love for you and commitment to you and delight in you, that fear can lose its power. Perfect love casts out fear. But for many of us, we know cognitively that God sees us. We just, we just, we just don't care. We just don't care very much. We want our husband to see or we want our wives to see and praise us. 
or we need our boss to understand how hard we're working. And the sad reality this morning is that for many of us, the eyes and approval of our Heavenly Father just don't seem to move us. It doesn't do it for us. Seeing in secret is not good enough for us. How does God's secret approval of us work on Facebook? How does God's secret and private and unknown works of righteousness function with our Instagram account? How on earth can we apply this to modern times that we live in? And I think in modern times, this warning has special and pervasive application because we have a lot of audiences right now in our modern times. We have lots of different audiences besides the marketplace or besides some public scenario. Those contexts, many of them are digital. Lastly, if we make peace with seeking the approval of man, we'll have no reward from our Father in heaven. This is fascinating, and it, it seems to me, my assessment is that Christians in our tribe, the kind of gospel-centered tribe of, um, of Christians in church, church planting, have a tough time understanding how to relate to concepts like rewards. And I want to use, I want us to reflect on just three points when it comes to the concept of biblical rewards. One, there's a reward that follows from practicing our righteousness like Jesus says. Two, they're both eternal rewards and a reward in and of themselves. And three, we forfeit our chance to have them if we give in to the impulse to get our reward from men now. First, Whatever understanding that we have about eternal rewards, it must be shaped by the word of God. And Jesus, it seems, sees zero inconsistency between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. The scriptures are full of faith with works, grace and labor, obedience and the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't run from it. Paul said, I worked harder than anybody. But nevertheless, it wasn't me that worked. It was the grace of God within me. In contexts like ours, in churches like ours, where the doctrine of things like election and sovereign grace are valued and appreciated and seen as precious, there can exist a temptation to be resistant to talking about rewards. But as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary, Concern about rewards is legitimate and is even encouraged by the New Testament. The New Testament teaches us that there will be a judgment of rewards. Every man's work shall be judged, whether it be of wood or hay or stubble or silver or gold. All of our works are going to be judged. We should be interested, therefore, in this matter of rewards, end quote. The New Testament sees no issue with places like Ephesians 2 and Philippians 3. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And Philippians 3, 14 says, I press on toward the goal for the prize. Grace isn't against 
effort. It's against earning. It's against earning. God, God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe me anything. The hard thing to believe is that he never will owe us anything. That never changes. That never changes. Nothing I can ever do can ever get God in my debt. But he's more generous than I could ever imagine. So my exhortation is that you would enlist all of your faculties, enlist all of your strength and all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul to get in the way of the blessings of God. Get in the pathway of all the blessings that God has for us. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, like Jesus will say later in the Sermon on the Mount, where moth and rust do not destroy. At, God, at, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The blessings and the rewards that you have streaming forth towards you in the path of grace with the living God are innumerable, innumerable. Make every effort, make every effort to live organized around his glory and his goodness. Because the rewards that Jesus offers are eternal and we experience them in the here and now. And that's my second point about rewards. There's an attitude There's an attitude that exists in the church that isn't biblical that says living for God is living only for future rewards. That's an incomplete understanding of rewards because living for eternal rewards also gives you a foretaste right now in this life. If you live in the presence of God for his approval alone, people will notice that you're happier, a more free person than the person who lives for man's approval. And I don't, I'm not like blowing anybody's mind with that. You all know that. You see people riddled with anxiety because they are stuck in a rat race to garner and get praise from men. And it's never enough because it'll never satisfy. And it makes you a slave now in this life. So the, re- the reward that our father gives us isn't only on the last day. The very way that Jesus tells us to live in some regard is its own reward right now. I mean, who in this room doesn't want to be completely free from approval seeking? Who doesn't want to be free? Who doesn't want to be free from the weight of seeking all of your acceptance and validation and approval and praise from men? Who doesn't want to experience the weight of God's approval so deeply that nothing, nothing anyone else says can shake you? Are you still living your life for the approval of your earthly father, even into your 30s and 40s? And it's never enough. Or living your life for your mother's approval, or perhaps your mother-in-law's approval? Or are you living your life and organizing your energy to get the approval of your boss? Or are you riddled with anxiety because you have to have the approval of your mentor? These are relational dynamics that we are very familiar with. 
They motivate us. They push us. Many times we're not even aware of it. How many of us are working and working and working and working to be seen, to be seen by these people? And I mean that language on, I mean, I'm using that language on purpose because that language has been packaged and shipped to us on the daily. And I want to ask a favor of, of you guys. Like if you ever hear me speaking in such a way that it seems like I, I'm saying things like I don't feel seen, I want you to do me a favor and say, what if that's, what if that's true, Mark? What, what if that's true? What if you never get to feel seen and loved and appreciated like you want to? What are you going to do then? If you can do that for me, if you can love me enough to do that for me, then you'll be giving me a gift of turning me back to my Father in heaven in repentance for seeking the kind of approval, the kind of reward that this is the deal, guys, the kind of approval and the kind of reward that only he can give, only he can provide you with. He's the only one that can give you the kind of approval and reward that sinks down to the bottom of that desire. Then I want us to be zealous for that kind of freedom. I want us to be zealous for freedom from the fear of man and the approval of man, and I'm zealous to see that happen. Let's help each other get there. And then here's my last point about rewards. We forfeit our chance to have the rewards that Jesus is talking about if we settle, if we settle for seeking our rewards from men. Plain and simple, beware of seeking rewards from men because if you seek rewards from men, you'll not get the rewards that God has to give you. Again, listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this really succinctly in a way that's really easy to take with you this Sunday. If you're seeking a reward from men, you might get what you're looking for, but that's all that you'll get. That's the dark part of our seeking the approval of men. You might get it, but you won't get anything else. Beware of seeking the esteem of men. You might get it, but that's all you'll get. Be aware of seeking fame and popularity and fortune in this life because you might get it, but that's all that you'll get. Beware of being motivated by the praise of men. Beware of being motivated by being seen by other people. You might get it, but that's all you'll get. Like John Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories which means we're always looking for a new idol and the approval of men is one that's constantly assaulting us. The prideful search for the esteem and approval and glory that comes from man never goes completely away. But if you live for it, if you make peace with that temptation to live in the presence of man instead of living in the presence of your heavenly father, you will forfeit the reward both in glory and in this life here and now. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Warnings from Jesus are kind. Warnings from Jesus are sweet and gentle warnings. He knows what we need, and he did everything to get us what we need. He died to see that happen for us. 
He said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So friends, Jesus is never holding out on us when he encourages us to beware of seeking the approval of man, to practicing our righteousness in front of man. Jesus, Jesus is never holding out on us. His warnings are for our ultimate good. And he died to prove all of this and to accomplish every promise that he made. He climbed onto a Roman cross and let his body be torn into shreds to get this kind of freedom for us. We find true freedom from the fear of man only by being united to Christ in his life, by being united to Christ in his death, and being united to Christ in his resurrection. And that's why we end every single service with communion, because at communion, we proclaim the gospel to each other, and we proclaim the gospel again on a weekly basis to the watching world. We tell the whole world that without the real life, death, and resurrection of a real God-man, we're lost. We're hopeless. There's no other way. And the way we take communion here at Redeemer Fellowship is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. There'll be two stations down here in front of the stage, one in the balcony, and there'll be a gluten-free single-serve station over here to my left. Also over to my left, underneath the stained glass window, we'll have prayer ministers who would love to pray for anything, any time. They're, they're there at the end of every single service. So if you're a Christian, if all of your hope for your wrestling, ongoing fight with the fear of man or living your life in the approval of man, if your only hope for that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life, then we invite you to take communion. And if that's not your only hope, I invite you to ask Jesus what he's talking about. Go to him. Go to him. Ask him for help. Interrogate your own heart and methods for living this life and see if they're working for you. I'm going to pray and thank Christ for his body and his blood. And as I do that, the musicians will come up and the servers will come up. And once I'm, once I'm finished, you all can, can come up. Join me as I pray. Jesus, thank you for your body that was broken. And thank you for your blood that was shed. Thank you that because you died, we can die to our selfish motives we can die to our desire for glory here and now. We can die to all the things that hold us back from true freedom. Spirit of God, empower us to eat in faith. Strengthen our faith as we come to the table again and again and again. Strengthen our faith. Give us a bedrock to build our house on. Let us hear your words and do them. Jesus, I ask by the power of the Holy Spirit and in your name. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.